If you will, please turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Uh, I'm going to be actually starting chapter 19, verse 30. That's where the parable is really going to start. I'll be preaching and teaching this morning from the ESV, the English Standard Version. So I'll read God's word, pray, and we'll get into it. Matthew chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, um, God, thank you for your saints that we get to gather here uh, and open up your word. God, I thank you that you have spoken, that we have your word. We have the very oracles of God. Thank you that your word is infallible. It is inerrant. It will never, uh, never fail, to do what it uh, fail to do what it attempts to do. You will always accomplish your purposes, God. Your word is unbreakable. And so, God, right now, we ask for your Holy Spirit's help to illuminate this text, these words of Jesus, this parable to our hearts. And Holy Spirit, I ask that the Spirit of God would bring out what he wants to bring out in our own hearts, reveal what you would have for us. And Lord, make Christ beautiful to all of us. Would we see what God has done in Christ Jesus? Help me now, God. May the meditation of my heart, the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, Britt asked me to uh, teach up here on Sunday a couple weeks ago, and uh, that, back then he gave me the text that I'd be teaching on. But as many of you guys know, I've been like in the middle of camp season, summer camp season for our junior hires and our high schoolers, so I wasn't able to like, what I would want to do is just dive into commentaries, dive into books, just burrow into the text. But I wasn't able to do that because I got to spend like a week with junior hires, whitewater rafting, and canyoneering, doing all kinds of different things. 
So I was busy with all these different details, and while I was super excited for it, I couldn't get into the books. Uh, so on the way back from camp, I kind of said to myself, you know, I got to start working on this. I got I to gotta figure some of this out. So I decided I'm going to do some creative research on my own. Uh, so I'm driving back in a big red van with a bunch of junior hires, and it's a seven-hour drive. Uh, so I think to myself, I'm, I'm going to do something right now. So I quiet down the kids. I get them to stop singing Moana uh, for the <laughs> 75th time. Turn down the radio, and I say, hey, guys, I'll give, I'll give whoever, whoever can recite for me three Bible verses by heart the next time we go to Foster's. I'll buy you whatever you want. I'll buy you whatever you want. So one of the girls just, oh, oh, I got this. So easy. She just rattles off three Bible verses. I'm like, dang, good job. Like, you're killing it. I'm like, okay, when we go to Foster's, I'll give you what, I'll get you whatever you want. Uh, and I turn to them, I say, uh, hey guys, could any, if any of you guys could name me two Bible verses, if any of you guys could name me two Bible verses, I'll, I'll buy you whatever you want at Foster's. I'll give you whatever you want. Uh, to this, the girl's head raises up. She looks at me like, wait, what are you doing right now? Um, so uh, she doesn't really say anything, but uh, I call him one of, my, one of my guys, says, oh, I can do it. Uh, and so he says, uh, John 3.16. He says, I'll say John 3.16. Uh, it's like, okay, easy. This guy's got it. And he starts and he opens his mouth and says, and? And I turn back to him. No? Uh, four. Oh, all right. For, for God so loved the world. It's like, okay, this guy's getting some steam. Here we go. For God so loved the world that, he just pauses. I'm like, for God so loved the world that he sent, oh yeah, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son to, and me and my co-pilot are up in the front, like just waiting, and the word to is just hanging in there. For God so loved the world he sent his only son to condemn. And we turn around and we're like, what? What did you just say? Like, John 3.16 is for God so loved the world that he sent his only son to condemn? Um, and I say, no, for God so loved the world he sent his only son who shall ever believe in him, shall have eternal life, never perish, right? And so he says, he says that by turning him, I say, hey, you know what, man? You tried, you did great. I'll get you whatever you want at Foster's. Um, to which the girl looks at me and goes, what? <laughs> Just disgust on her face. And I think I started showing my cards a little too quickly because I quickly turned around. I said, oh, how does that make you feel? Like, what are you feeling right now? And she looked at me. She kind of squinted her eyes. She, got, she was sitting by two of her girlfriends. And she, like, brought them in close. And I just hear this. <laughs> and I said, what's going on? And she looks at me and she goes, you're just doing that one thing that Jesus did when he hired all these workers. And then he gave, he gave the ones who worked hard, he gave them just as much as the last ones. And she's like, so I'm not mad. I'm getting fosters. Um, so with that effective immediately, I've decided, guys, we're starting some Bible memorization for our kids. Uh, but like be encouraged. Like our kids apparently know the stories of Jesus pretty well. Um, so now that, that's like a cute story, right? That's a cute story about seeing the moral of a story play out in real life. But what I'm wanting for this morning, what I want for this morning is to rescue us from seeing this parable of Jesus 
as just a moral fable. I want to rescue us from seeing this parable as just a story with a nice meaning. In order to do that, we need to recognize this parable is a continuation of the narrative we've been in. This is a continuation of the narrative we've been in and that we were in last week. So let me remind you of the scene in which we enter. There's the rich young ruler has just come to Jesus and his disciples, right? The prize disciple. Like, this is the guy, if you're going to go plant a church, this is the guy you want on your team, okay? He's morally upright, he's rich, he's powerful, he's a ruler, and as Britt reminded us last week, like, he definitely had a beard. He definitely had a beard. I would contend that it was a well-groomed beard, but that's besides the point. So, he's the prized disciple, and he comes to Christ, and he says, what would I have to do to follow you? And this prized disciple... This rich young ruler walks away from Christ because he's a slave to his own treasure. And the disciples see this and they look to Jesus and like, Jesus, what's going on? We've left everything for you. Like that guy just walked away, but we've actually left everything for you. So they're starting to wonder, like, is this all worth it? If that guy can't follow you, like, what about us? We've left everything everything for you. And then Jesus gave him a promise. Give him a promise. And he said, nothing, nothing you leave for the sake of Christ will be reckoned at loss, as loss on the final day. In the new heavens and the new earth, none of us are going to look back on what we gave up for Christ, what we left for Christ, and say, that wasn't worth it. That was loss. But it's into this holy moment of the disciples wondering, is this really all worth it? That Jesus tells a story. He gave them a promise. He said, none of you are going to look back and want. Absolutely no one in the kingdom of God is going to look back when we're with Christ and say, I wish I had that. I wish I hadn't have given that up. But Jesus also, he doesn't just give us that promise. He also gives us a parable. And he gives us the parable to cut to our hearts. And this parable is going to shock us into soberly seeing the sovereign grace of our God. Chapter 19, verse 30, and chapter 20, verse 16 are bookends of the story. In this like little bit of poetic brevity, Jesus says, the first will be last and the last first how he begins his story. He's going to conclude the story in a reverse echo by saying, so the last will be first and the first last. So what do these words mean? These words that Jesus picked to give his disciples in a moment of wondering, is this all going to be worth it? What do these words mean? Well, let's turn together to verse 1 and see the story unfold. Verse 1 and 2. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Okay, so what's going on here is we have day laborers, right? We have day laborers, and uh, the master of the vineyard is going into the marketplace where the day laborers gather, and he wants to hire some people. Now, these day laborers, they don't have any work. That's why they went to the marketplace. They don't have their own work, and it's likely that if they don't get hired today 
They're not going to be able to provide for their families. They're not going to be able to have that daily bread that we see mentioned throughout Scripture. Uh, if they don't get work, they're out. They don't, have, uh, they don't have enough for the day. So the master of the house goes and approaches some laborers at the very beginning of the day, and he says, hey, work for me, and I'll give you a denarius for today. I'll give you a denarius for today, which all we need to know about a denarius is that's a fair wage. That was a fair wage. It was a wage for an entire day of work. He said, I'll give you that. They said, okay, that's fair. We agree about it. Continuing in verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. So a few things contextually uh, that we should know about the time is back in this day, first century, uh, first century Middle East and Rome, the day is going to be divided up into uh, different watches or different hours. So the beginning of a workday would be the first hour. This is 6 a.m. So the sun rises. It's an agrarian culture mostly. So people are going to go and work as soon as the sun rises. 6 a.m. is the first hour. And then you get the third hour. You just add three hours. So 6 a.m., the third hour would be 9 a.m., the sixth hour, noon, and so on and so forth. So we don't know why. The scripture doesn't give us uh, a reason why, but this this master, he goes out and he desires more workers in his vineyard and he keeps hiring workers in his vineyard throughout the entire day. So we see him uh, go and he says, he doesn't say to these workers, he doesn't say, I'm going to pay you a certain amount. He just says, hey, come and work for me and I'll pay you what's fair. Come and work for me and I'll pay you what's fair. So he goes out and he hires workers. The first worker is at 6 a.m., goes out again at 9 a.m., and again at noon, and again at 3 and then the 11th hour, he goes out and he wor- hires workers at 5 p.m. Now, something about the 11th hour workers. Something about the 11th hour workers. 11th hour even, it's actually, it's cool. It's a cultural saying now. It comes from scripture. The 11th hour is like that last minute. It's like the bottom of the ninth inning in baseball. It's the last little bit of time left. And I want you to see these hired workers that get hired at the 11th hour, they probably didn't get hired for a reason, okay? Like 11th hour workers don't get hired for a reason. Uh, Maybe it's because they're just known as lazy, right? Maybe they're just known as lazy. Maybe it's because the uh, the master could see, you just wouldn't be effective in my vineyard. For whatever reason, you just wouldn't be effective. Maybe they crossed the wrong boss. They crossed the wrong boss, so no one's gonna hire these guys. Um, As one pastor, Robert Capon said, maybe they've just been drinking all day right? And like, you're not going to hire a baracho for like a day labor to come and work in your vineyard. You're just not going to do that. So the point is, you don't get left behind for no reason. You don't leave behind a strong, hardworking, morally upright person when you're looking for trustworthy people to work hard in your vineyard. So we have the peculiar uh, actions of the master. It's kind of peculiar. Why is he going out and hiring people throughout the day? We don't know, but we have the peculiar actions of the master, the different hired workers, and now the day is done. 
And the master will pay them according to Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15, which say, in God's law, he gave, them, uh, he gave them provision for protecting the marginalized people, the people on the fringes of society. So one of the things God told his people of Israel back in Deuteronomy is this, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he's one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day, before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. So the boss, he's like a little unique, but he's a good Jewish master. He's paying his people in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, they worked a day for me. I'm going to pay them at the end of the day. It's business as usual until we read the second half of verse 8. So I'll start verse 8 at the beginning. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Beginning with the last up to the first. So that phrase, that phrase that bookended this entire parable, right? Jesus begins it and it's like kind of an enigma. It's intriguing what's going on here. And he's going to finish the story with that. He's the same phrase he uses to bookend the parable. He inserts in the middle of it. And this is the phrase on which the whole parable turns. Jesus, right here, is inviting his disciples into the upside-down kingdom of God. He says, begin with the last, up to the first. So what's going to happen? Verse 9 we read, And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. So each of them receive a denarius. The people have been working one hour. They come to the boss. The boss just said, I'll give you what's fair. And they get an entire day's wage. They get an entire day's wage. Now, for us in the church, we love when a sinner gets saved, right? We love when a sinner gets saved. We just say, man, like, isn't that awesome? Isn't that so great when a sinner gets saved? When those in need get more than they deserve, we rejoice when that happens. And isn't it, isn't it wonderful when the unlikely gets saved in church? Like, an addict repents of their sin. An addict repents of their sin. Like a guy turns to Christ and Christ changes his heart. Whatever it is, we love, we all love a feel-good story of grace. And we think we love undeserved, unadulterated grace and that we rejoice that God saves the unworthy. We think we love that. But verse 10 is going to reveal what's really going on underneath a heart that isn't continually captured by the scandal of grace. Verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. So here, here's what's going on here. Uh, you see, you've been working hard all day, and you get promised to get paid a full day's wage, and then you see a guy who's only been working for an hour, comes to the boss man, boss man gives him a full paycheck. What do you start doing? You start calculating, oh, what, what, that, what must that mean for me, right? If I'm working seven more hours, I'm going to get, I'm calculating, I'm going to get a huge payday. Like, if they got a full denarius, what must I get? If that lazy one-hour worker, like, got a full day's pay, then what's coming to me must be amazing. Like, what I'm going to get is going to be amazing. But each of them also received a denarius. They got the same thing for working a full day's work, 
as that person that worked one hour. Verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled against the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Do you hear the sense of injustice in their voice? Just the disgust? I've been working hard all day in the blazing sun, and you made that person equal to me? Now, we love, we love the unworthy person coming, getting what they don't deserve, getting saved. But what happens when the undeserving sinner, completely undeserving, gets the same exact treatment as you, who's been working hard in the heat all day? The denarius in this parable, it's, the denarius in the parable is eternal life. They all receive what they need. They all receive a day's wage, but rewards are revealing, right? They all got what they needed, but the rewards are revealing. And most of us, most of us here, I doubt anyone is going to uh, get up and tear their clothes and put on ash and sackcloth if someone comes up here and gets saved who you wouldn't think would get saved, right? We're not, we're not going to go and do that. But with these other lesser rewards, with blessings— what do we do? Like, we have eternal life, but what about what they got? I know, I know I'm saved. I know all my sins are forgiven. But look at what they have right now. And why don't I have that? And what the workers do in this parable, what the workers are doing is they take their eyes off of the master and what he gave them, what they needed, a full day's wage everyone got, and they look and they compare to what others got. And we, we do it again with mere blessings. We have received the gift of eternal life, but we want to look at others and compare with what they have. So friend, Christian, are you grumbling against God? Like, are you disgusted by who it appear God has made equal to you? Like when your lazy coworker gets the promotion and you don't. Or when you're left waiting upon God in your singleness and, it, and like Instagram's just blowing up with weddings, right? Like, what are you doing? When, when that dysfunctional couple, when they get pregnant and you're left waiting and trying, when your body hasn't received healing yet, when you're sick and somebody who treats their body like trash is doing fine. When you're struggling to make, pay, when you're struggling to make ends meet, you don't have enough work. Are you grumbling against God? Are you disgusted by who he would make equal to you? We need to see the master's reply. Verse 13. But he replied to one of them. We don't know which one, but the next word he's going to say, I think, is really important. And this is what he says. He replied to one of them, friend. Somebody, somebody grumbles against me. I hire people to do work, and I choose to be generous to somebody, and somebody just grumbles against me. Why didn't you give me this? How could you do that? I don't think I'm going to respond to the person, friend. 
But the master turns to the ungrateful worker and he says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? The master entreats one of the workers and he says to him, friend, friend. And Christian, what the master is going to say contains these truths of who God is and this is what our heart needs. When we are begrudging the generosity of God, when we are disgusted by who God would make equal to us, when we are grumbling against God, the truths contained in the master's words are what we need. So friend, hear these truths about God. Number one, God is debtor to no one. God is debtor to absolutely no one. The story of the universe isn't that we've been working hard and that God now owes us a paycheck. Like, that's not the story of the universe. We have rebelled against a holy God and our treachery against him, our cosmic transgression, it actually deserves punishment. It deserves hell. Like, it's not just the world is messed up, we're messed up. It's our problem. It's our problem. The, the dividing line between good and evil, it runs through our very own heart. We're the problem. And the truth is, we don't, we're not hard workers for God who just deserve a paycheck. We are all poor day laborers who would be passed over and have no work unless a gracious master called us. In the book of Romans, Paul is building uh, this cosmic story of God creating all things, humanity rebelling against them, and actually our rebellion against God drawing out the depths of his love for us. Like our rebellion let us see into God just how deep his love is. In that he sent forth his son to rescue, to save, and it's at the climax of the eternal like salvation plan of God that Paul says these words. After looking at all of it, this is how Paul has to conclude his argument at the end of chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who might give him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be all glory forever. Amen. God owes no one anything. Everything comes to him. Everything is through him. Everything is for him. He alone is glorious. He is not indebted to us. None of us has done something for God that he is in a place of needing something from us. He is debtor to absolutely no one. Number two, God is always just in his dealings. God is always just in his dealings. The first will be last and the last will be first. How, how is Jesus able to say that? Like, what does that actually mean when you spin around in your head for a while that the first are completely equal to the last? The reason Jesus is able to say that is because neither the first 
nor the last, contribute anything. None of them meritoriously accomplish their salvation. No one contributes anything to their own salvation. It is of God. No one's meritoriously deserving. Imagine a race, right? How, how, can a, how can the first be last and the last be first? In a race, the only possible way is if the person in first place and the person in last place finish like in a dead heat, right? Finish at the exact same moment in time. And Christians, in salvation, your work for God, be it an hour. If someone walked in here right now, they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died in their place for their sins, that they deserve punishment. Christ has died for them. They turn from their sin. They trusted in him. They die in an hour. They are just, you are no more deserving than them if you have been living an entire lifetime for Christ. Do you believe that? No one is more deserving than another of salvation. I think we get that a lot of the time Uh, at least at the high level of salvation. But I think really in the gifts of life is where our works righteousness thing really comes out. So God, in the giving of his gifts, you need to hear this, that God is always wise in his gifts. John Newton was writing to a woman who was really struggling. She was really struggling with discontentment. She was really suffering. She said, like, what do I do? What do I do? John Newton wrote back in a letter to her, and he said this. He even began the sentence. He said, All things must work together for your good. Everything which he sends is needful. Nothing can be needful which he withholds. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, a man who knew what a wretch he was before God, said, If someone has something, It's because God in his infinite wisdom has said it would be good for you to have this. And if you feel like right now God's withholding something from you, it's only because he loves you and he's more wise than you are. He loves you enough to withhold something for you from you if it's not going to be the best for you. Everything which he sends is needful. Nothing can be needful which he withholds. Uh, A really interesting question came up when I was studying this. And this is, why does the master line up all the people? Like, why does he line up the last workers in front of the first workers? Like, another way to say, was it kind of messed up for me to, like, flaunt in front of the girl who answered correctly three Bible verses? Like, oh, I'm just going to give this person the same thing? Was that like, was this wrong of the master to do this? Why would God do that? Is God just trying to draw out, like, just trying to make a sin, basically? Um, well, first off, no, we know from James, like, let no one, no one say when they are tempted, God is tempting me. God does not tempt anyone. So what's he doing here? What's he doing here? Well, let's look especially at verse 20, uh, Matthew 20, verse 15. Uh, it's going to say this, that... Master replies to the begrudging servants, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? So something interesting is going on here. The NASB is going to translate it this way. 
Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Or in the old King James, it's going to say, is thine eye evil because I am good? So what's going on here? What's going on here? Do you begrudge because I'm generous? Is, is your eye envious because I am generous? What's going on here is God's, God isn't tempting people, is not pushing them to be envious, to sin, but it is God's generosity in his dealings that have only ever served to bring out our own envy. That's, that's what's wrong with our hearts, is actually that when we see the generosity of God, it at times brings out the wickedness of our own heart, that we envy others. We see how God is generous to one. We say, why don't I have that? His generos- generosity shows our begrudging, sinful nature. Number three, God has his own plans and his own purposes. We see in the text, the master says, uh, can I not do what I want with what belongs to me? The master doesn't have to answer to anyone. Master doesn't have to answer to anyone in this parable. And God, too, he has his own plans and his own purposes. But let me tell you this. His plan from all of eternity, from eternity past, was that he might save a people for himself. That is the plan and the purpose of God. And the great treasure of the gospel, the great treasure of the gospel is not that we receive earthly blessings. The treasure of the gospel is not that you, you get, because you follow Jesus, a happy family. It's not. It's not that you get a wife or a husband or a job or riches or health. That is not the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that God has promised by himself at the expense of his own son on the cross. He has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the promise and the treasure of the gospel. And this is the generosity of God. This is the generosity of God. That every act of rebellion I have committed against a holy God, every moment of anger, all of my lust, every self-righteous thought of how dare that person be made equal to me, every single sin against the creator of the universe was nailed to the cross of Christ, and I bear my sin no more. That is the generosity of God that I have been plunged into the blood of the lamb and as I'm lifted up, the sin which once stained me, I am not stained by it anymore, but that I'm holy and righteous and blameless before him. That is the generosity of God. That I bear my sin no more. And at the final day, at the final day, there will be those who are drunkards or prostitutes addicts, the undeserving, everyone who's despaired of their own self-righteousness will enter the kingdom of God by the merit of Christ alone. And the poor in spirit 
you remember that phrase? Which Jesus began his greatest sermon ever with, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who know if it weren't for God, I don't have a hope. The poor in spirit will receive white garments and crowns. But in that day, in that day, no one's going to be rejoicing over their own white garments or their own crowns. Because the greatest gift of all will be that we will be with God himself. And no one's going to be boasting about their own treasure. Like Jesus has given us a promise. Yeah, whatever you give up in this life, whatever you leave, whatever you forsake, I will pay you back a hundredfold. And take that promise to the bank. Trust that promise. But in that day, when we're reunited in Christ, no one is going to be bragging and boasting about their own treasure because we will be in the immediate, unfading, eternal presence of Christ. Like, do you realize there's coming a day where we who have trusted in Christ will actually see face to face the one who saved our souls? And his face isn't going to fade away. He's not going to leave. We will be with him forever. So maybe, maybe you've been a Christian for years. Maybe you've been a Christian for years. And you just feel, you feel it right now. You're like, I've left so much for Christ. Like, I followed, I followed what he's told me to do in his word, and it feels like loss. It feels like I've given up so much. And I see other people just thriving. I see other people, they seem to just be killing it in life. And Lord, where are you? And what I want to ask you is, friend, are you begrudging the generosity of God? Are you forsaking the knowledge of what you have in Christ? If so, I want to encourage you, recount and rejoice in the riches you have in Christ. He's given you a promise. Trust that promise. He said, whatever you leave, I will pay back a hundredfold. But he's also given us a parable to help us see clearly, not one of us is deserving of this grace. Not one of us. Maybe you came into church, like, literally all you could do, it's even second service, we moved it back 30 minutes, but still you're like, I barely got here. I had to drag myself out of bed. I want to follow Christ, and it's just hard. I want to encourage you, get on your face before God and cry out to him. Ask him to restore the joy of your salvation. Ask him to reveal to your heart the treasure that you have in Christ, and he will be enough for you today. And you come to him tomorrow, and it'll be enough for you then. And you keep coming to him until the waterfall of his grace falls on you. The way it is today isn't the way it's always going to be, but Christ will be enough for you today. And lastly, maybe, maybe you're one of these 11th hour workers, right? You're like, honestly, I don't even know how I got here today. Like, why am I sitting in this place right now? Um, or maybe, maybe... No one would think that about you, but you know that about yourself. You know this has just all been a farce. This has just all been a thing, and I begrudge God, like, I'm doing fine. I don't need him. You have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ. What I'm here to tell you today 
is that you are here this morning and I am preaching this text because God in his sovereign generosity and grace is calling you to repent. Come to him today. Reminded of the thief on the cross, J.C. Ryle said, remember the thief on the cross. Christ gave us the thief on the cross that no one may despair. You're saying, you don't know what I've done. You don't, I know that the cross was sufficient. I know that Christ's death can remove all of our sins, that the death of the Son of God was enough. Remember, look at the, look at the thief on the cross. Don't despair. Turn to him. J.C. Ryle also said, but remember that there was only one thief that none may presume on the grace of God. So wherever you're at, begrudging the generosity of God, just hurting, today as we enter into the second set of worship, for all of us who have trusted in Christ, come and take communion and see in communion this picture of our need and the generosity of God. Like, what do you bring to this table? You don't bring anything but yourself. You don't bring anything but your need. And God has provided all you need in Christ. And you remember, this is his body and this is his blood. And I remember I proclaimed the death of Christ and this is enough for me. And there's coming a day where you will eat this meal with him, with all his saints. Come to him today. Don't begrudge the generosity of our God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we turn our hearts to praise you, as these lights turn off, as the lyrics come on, as the music is playing, would we turn our hearts to you? God, and if there's, there's an area where we're bitter at you, where we're begrudging your generosity towards someone else, and we're saying, why didn't you give it to me? Would we confess that? Would we go and get prayer? God, if we're struggling, if we're hurting, would we have the faith to trust Christ? You are enough today. Now, nothing we give up in this life, we won't be repaid a hundredfold, but also nothing will we ever say, I wish I had held on to that. Christ, you are our treasure. So we ask that you would be glorified now, that we would adore you, we would fall at your feet, we would see how great of a salvation we have from our God. Love you. Inhabit the praises of your people now. In Christ's name, amen.